This isn't the first story that we've heard about a widow. It's not even the first story this month we've heard about a widow in church. In scripture, the widow is most often used as the caricature of vulnerability. The widow is lumped in with the poor and orphans and immigrants, highlighting the most vulnerable and downtrodden of society. It's because of the precariousness of their social and economic position that Jewish laws make explicit mention of them over and over, helping to ensure protection, provisions, and that they do not fall victim to exploitation. The precariousness of a widow's position is indeed an important factor in the message of these stories. The thing is, though, we lose some of the complexities of these stories when we only view the widow as a caricature. In addition to being vulnerable, widows also appear as prophetic, active, and faithful. Do you remember the poor widow from a couple weeks ago? She was a model of faithful generosity. The first widow of Luke's gospel is Anna. She's a prophet. She spreads the good news of Jesus' birth. At another point in the gospel, Jesus mentions the widow of Zarephath. She offered food to the prophet Elijah in the midst of a famine with what little she had. Elijah ended up bringing her son back from the dead. Later, Jesus does the same thing with the son of the widow of Nain. All of these stories come from just this gospel that includes the widow from our story today. She is indeed vulnerable, heading out day after day without anyone to protect her, to bang on the judge's doors. But most notably, she is persistent, active, and forceful enough to get the justice she demands. Now, it's a pretty common complaint that scripture is hard to understand. What do these wild, ancient stories even mean? And so what? What does it have to say for me and my life? So isn't it nice when this story starts out by telling us exactly what it's all about? Did you hear that? Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. Could you imagine if all of the stories we read started out this way? Imagine you cracked open Harry Potter and it says, this is a story about wizards and the triumph of good over evil. All the Harry Potter fans in the room are like, wait, 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 wait. But it's also about love and it's also about friendship and identity and love being the best magic of all. It's true. On the surface, this parable is a story about the contrast between a just God and a very unjust judge and the hopes of teaching us readers the value of patience and perseverance in prayer. But the widow wasn't just practicing persistent prayer. She was insisting on justice. The persistent widow wore down the judge until he provided her with justice, but not for the sake of justice, rather just to rid him of the annoyance and irritation. Then Jesus promises that God, unlike this unjust judge, will quickly bring justice to those who cry out, justice for justice's sake. All it takes is five minutes watching or reading the news to contradict this hope. 
children crying out with hunger pains for years only being met with empty bellies, years and years of undrinkable water just down the road from here and in countries all around the world. And how many years has it been since the civil rights movement began and racially charged terror and crime is still a daily occurrence in this country? Jesus says, do not lose heart. But we do lose heart, don't we? Perseverance in prayer and justice seeking is anything but simple. This right here might be one of the greatest challenges that the church faces, especially when you consider that it's 2,000 years later and we are still struggling with injustice and unanswered prayers, just like our siblings in Christ who have gone before us. As I reflected on this scripture for the past week, I could hear Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s words from a letter from the Birmingham City Jail echoing in my head. Will you put that up on the screen for me, please? In 1963, King says, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word, wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see, with one of our distinguished jurists, that justice too long delayed is justice denied. King's words are strong, yet painful. Too many people are still being told to wait. Prayers still go unanswered. Justice continues to be delayed. So many lose heart. So where is this God who promises to provide justice quickly? In the face of that question, this parable swoops in with a powerful conviction. God is still worthy and faithful to that promise, despite the reality that we may not see within our lifetime the justice that has been promised to us. Thy will will eventually be done on, on earth as it is in heaven. To which King also spoke, saying the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. This is where that first sentence of the parable is actually really important. It didn't say this is a parable about what we should expect from God. It said this is a parable about us and our actions. This is about how we struggle, as did the widow for justice, even while we see justice unfulfilled in our lifetime. Now, I wouldn't be a graduate of a Presbyterian seminary without being at least a little bit fond of John Calvin. Reformed theology, and especially Calvin, always emphasize that we cannot separate who God is and what God does from who we are and what we are called to do. This story is as much, or I would argue, more about us as it is about God. Rather than sitting and waiting for God to meet our needs, are we not called to do justice for and with the disenfranchised? Rather than waiting for God's miracle, 
Are we not called to be the miracle that others have been praying for? Prayer plays a huge role in Luke's gospel. The book begins with the whole assembly of the people praying outside the temple. Jesus prays at his baptism and withdraws to pray at very key points in his ministry and once more at the Mount of Olives before his death. Jesus instructs his followers to pray for their enemies. And when the disciples ask him to teach them to pray, he introduces the Lord's Prayer. Thoughts and prayers have gotten a bad reputation over the past few years, for good reason. Thoughts and prayers have been flippantly used by politicians to dismiss or claim any responsibility for a lack of policy change or action. Our story for today reminds us that the type of prayer we're talking about here is not a passive activity, but one that actively seeks God and pursues God's hopes and dreams, God's will for us as it is in heaven here on earth. So what does active prayer look like? Active prayer looks like Holy Saturday. Do you remember Holy Saturday? It's the day after Good Friday and the day before Easter. It's the in-between day. Holy Saturday is a seemingly hopeless place. It's a seemingly hopeless place where all that is known is the brutality and violence of Friday and Sunday seems so uncertain, too far away to just wait for. Liminal spaces like that are really hard. Teetering on the edge of what was and what will be is incredibly uncomfortable. That's why we very rarely ever recognize Holy Saturday. We're really quick to jump from the pain and uncomfortability of what happened to the joy and celebration of what we know is coming. But Holy Saturday is where the widow lives. She's suffering, pounding on the doors of injustice, not knowing if she will ever see her prayers answered. I'm struck with the realization that only those with privilege have the option to not be persistent. Only those with privilege can escape the uncomfortability and demanding of justice. Only those with privilege can hop to Sunday and take a break. You see, the widow has no choice but to continue demanding justice from the unjust judge. It happened to be so that he gave in to her demands, but I am convinced that if he did not give her justice, she would have been back the next day and the next day and the next day demanding justice until her face turned blue. 10 years ago, I had a wise professor remind me of something I have never forgotten. Church was never meant to be comfortable. Physically, have you ever been to one of those old churches with those really hard pews? They didn't put the cushions on them? Yeah, they're really hard and the backs are like almost perpendicular to the seats. They're like 89.9 degrees, like just shy of 90. They are uncomfortable and they are uncomfortable for a reason, to keep parishioners followers of Jesus, the faithful, awake and listening. Awake and listening to stories like these that force us to look inward and see ourselves in the unjust judge. 
or challenge us to examine our privilege or encourage us to get a little bit uncomfortable in the pursuit of justice. So how do we do this work? Oscar Romero, in a letter to the Catholic Church about their mission to be a voice to the voiceless, the poor and disadvantaged, said this about how we are to do the work of justice seeking. He said, it ought to be solidarity with them, running the risks they run, enduring the persecution that is their fate, ready to give the greatest possible testimony to its love by defending and promoting those who were first in Jesus' love. Running risk, enduring persecution, suffering with. It begs the question, how uncomfortable are you willing to get? Are you willing to give money to a homeless person not knowing how those funds are going to be spent? Are you willing to give money to a nonprofit that causes your financial situation to become a little bit uncomfortable? Are you willing to vote to bring affordable housing to your neighborhood at the expense of upsetting your neighbors? Are you willing to step out of that comfort zone to march or protest with strangers in a potentially dangerous area? Are you willing to enter the discomfort and unease of Holy Saturday in full resistance to injustice and in full commitment to active, persistent prayer? Amen. Hi again. How's everybody? Good. I am sure that you have seen on the internet or in magazines personality quizzes that ask who you are. For example, which breed of dog are you? Which Disney princess are you? Which character from Friends are you? Are you a Monica or are you a Rachel? And then after five or six questions, you find out, OMG, I'm a Phoebe. <laughs> I have a genius business idea where I would craft quizzes like this about Bible characters. Are you a Mary or are you a Martha? Are you a Simon or are you a Peter? Trick question, those two are the same. <laughs> and then a little box would pop up and say, do you want to learn more? And then it would take you to a Bible lesson. I don't know how to make this. I don't know how to monetize it. But someone in this room does, so let me know. <laughs> in the meantime, here's my first quiz. Are you a Pharisee or are you a tax collector? Ooh, both sound so tempting. Okay. I'll tell you about both Pharisees and tax collectors so that you can make an informed choice. Before we dive into their similarities and differences, though, I want to say that Jesus kind of makes a case both for and against the Pharisee and the tax collector in the story that we just heard. And I want to remind you that both of these individuals are Jewish. It's really important to remember that Jesus is also Jewish. Any criticism that he has is not a critique on Jews or Judaism overall. It's meant to be a commentary on how these particular characters practice the faith that he also shares. I know that you know this, but it's important to say it in a world that unfortunately and infuriatingly still includes anti-Semitism. 
that would also be a little box that pops up during the quiz. Okay, so first, the Pharisee. In ancient Palestine, there were different groups that each practiced Judaism in kind of a particular way. Pharisees were the group that was known for strictly observing Jewish law. They lived by the book, literally. They were also pretty well respected, and some of them were also politically powerful. Additionally, some of Jesus' friends and followers were Pharisees, including Nicodemus, the disciple Joseph, and even the Apostle Paul was a follower of the Pharisees. So now you might be thinking, ooh, maybe I'm a Pharisee. Okay, let's talk about how this particular Pharisee from this story prayed at the temple. Our Pharisee goes to the temple to pray, but once he starts praying, it turns out that his prayer is all about himself. Thank God I'm not like other people. Thank God I'm not a thief or an adulterer or like that tax collector that's standing right over there. I go above and beyond my religious duties. I can imagine he ends his prayer with, aren't you lucky to have me? Amen. <laughs> so now you might be thinking, yeah, I'm not sure I want to be this Pharisee. What's my other option? Thanks for asking. Your other option is a tax collector. Ancient Palestinian tax collectors were super wealthy. Essentially, they said to Rome, I'll pay you in advance for the right to collect taxes. And then they would go out and squeeze as much money as possible from the people. The more money they took from people, the more profit they would make and the richer they would get. As you might imagine, tax collectors were absolutely despised. Fellow Jews considered them traitors, they were often very corrupt, and by Jewish religious standards, they were also considered unclean. No self-respecting Jew would associate with a tax collector. They were considered the scum of the earth. Okay, so now you're like, no thanks, I'm not a tax collector either. But let's talk about how this particular tax collector prays. The story says the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. We came to this story assuming that the tax collector would be awful. And don't get me wrong, his actions are awful, and Jesus knows that too. It's important to note that Jesus does not say that the corruption and the stealing and the injustices are okay. And the tax collector's heartfelt prayer does not make up for his actions. In other words, thoughts and prayers are not enough. And yet the tax collector is, at the very least, self-aware. We perhaps leave the story feeling hopeful that this tax collector will turn out like some of the others in the Gospels who right their wrongs and pay the people back with interest. Okay, so there you have it. Which one are you? This Pharisee, devoted to God, but pretty full of himself? Or the tax collector, hated and corrupt, but surprisingly humble? Chances are you walk away from the story thinking, thank God I'm not like either of these people. Which ironically is the exact prayer that you were so critical of. This parable is surprisingly clever. The good news is that Jesus is not challenging us to a quiz. 
He's not asking us to decide which one of these people we are. Like most parables, it's more complicated than that. The text seems to be calling us to notice how you came to the story assuming one thing and then finding another. To notice how you simultaneously see yourself in both individuals and find things that you dislike about each of them. Perhaps most importantly, we are called to notice how you walked away from the story no longer seeing roles or titles, but seeing two more fully formed human beings, both in need of help, both transformed by prayer. It's the prayer piece of this story that most intrigues me, because it's the prayers that allowed us to see their humanity. And so too do I think that prayer can allow us to better see ourselves and each other. With God's help, such genuine expression liberates us from the barriers and the binaries of the world. From are you a Monica or a Rachel? Are you a man or a woman? Are you a Pharisee or a tax collector? And reveals what we truly are, a beloved child of God. The other day, my friends Karen and Elizabeth stopped by my house to drop something off. And they knocked on the door, but it took me a few minutes to respond because I was deep cleaning my kitchen and I needed to wash my hands before I greeted them. And when I finally opened the door, Karen said, what were you doing in there, praying? And I laughed and I laughed because like many, I don't spend hours and hours praying. I don't set aside special time or go to a special place in order to pray. But I have a theory that all of us are praying more often than we realize. For example, when you are driving your car and the car in front of you is driving very slowly and you approach a stoplight and the slow car makes it through the intersection, but you are stopped at the red light and you say out loud, oh my God, I believe that's a prayer. When you come home to your house and you find that your dog has had an accident all over the carpet, and then you round the corner and you realize that, that accident extends through the living room, and you whisper to yourself, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I believe that that is a prayer. On a serious note, when you see images of bombings in Ukraine or the humanitarian crisis in Haiti, or the women who are being violently persecuted in Iran, or a mass shooting in the next state over, or the fires and the floods caused by climate change, and you say out loud, God, what is going on? I believe that that's a prayer. When you're out for a walk and you see the moon rising, huge and orange, and you pause to look at it through the trees, and you think, what a miracle that something so beautiful exists and that I get to exist too. Maybe you don't even articulate it like that. Maybe you don't say anything at all. But just being there and noticing the moon in that special moment, I believe that's a prayer. In her book, An Altar in the World, theologian Barbara Brown Taylor writes, the next time you go to the grocery store, try engaging the cashier. You do not have to invite her home for lunch or anything but take a look at her face while she's find, trying to find arugula on her laminated list of produce. Here is someone who exists even when she is not ringing up your groceries, as hard as that may be for you to imagine. 
She has a home she returns to when she hangs up her apron here, a kitchen that smells of last night's supper, a bed where she occasionally lies awake at night, wrestling with her own angels and demons. You saved $11.06 by shopping at Winn-Dixie today, she says, looking right at you. All that is required is that you look back. Just meet her eyes for a moment when you say thanks. In this story, that eye contact and that thanks, I believe, is a prayer. Without words, we're acknowledging what a miracle it is that we crossed paths, existing in the world together at this exact moment. I wonder how Jesus' story would have changed if the Pharisee and the tax collector had met eyes like this. What if they had realized all that they have in common, followers of the same Jewish faith, worshiping at the same temple, praying to the same God? What if, instead of standing far apart, the tax collector had looked right at the Pharisee and the Pharisee had chosen to look back? I will tell you which one I think I am. Between the Pharisee and the tax collector, I'm the Pharisee. Because how many times have I said to myself, thank God I'm not like that person. Thank God I don't live in that part of town. Thank God I don't have that job. Thank God I don't hold those political beliefs. What would it be like to practice a little less, thank God I'm not you, and a little more, thank God for you? I don't know. But what I think this story is about is that God is calling us to dig deeply within ourselves the way that the tax collector did and get in touch with our deepest sighs, our biggest hurt, our greatest longings, that authentic part that escapes with the words, good God, when we see violent images, that tender peace that cries at videos of dogs being reunited with their owners, that genuine awe at the world's impossible beauty. That's the piece of ourselves that God is asking us to pray with. That's the piece that's gonna allow us to not only ask, dear God, how can I love others as you do, but also how to figure out the answer. Years ago at Camp Akita, we welcomed a sixth grader with autism. Children with autism have attended Akita for years, but unfortunately this particular camper had some violent outbursts, throwing rocks, saying some threatening words, and despite our conversations with him, he ended up lashing out against a bunkmate. Parents and staff agreed for everyone's safety. It was time for this camper to head home. I'm not gonna lie to you. After I made that call, I thought to myself, thank God this kid is going home. I drove the camper and his counselor back to Columbus. I was in the driver's seat, and both of them sat in the back seat behind me. I kept looking in the rearview mirror at them as they talked about a whole host of things, comic books, movies. And then the camper said, am I gonna miss the talent show? And I looked in the rearview mirror again and made split-second eye contact with the counselor. And in that millisecond, we shared the realization that this camper did not fully understand that he was going home. And in that look, I could see the counselor's heart breaking. But he took a breath and he responded, yeah, you are gonna miss it, but that just means you'll be extra ready for it next year. I believe that that was a prayer. That was a pleading moment with God. It was a genuine wish that things could be different. Not a thank God you're leaving, 
but a dear God, I hope you can come back. Prayer gives us the opportunity to try to articulate our greatest need. Sometimes it's shouted as we look down at the ground, beating our chests, and sometimes it's a two-word whisper. Other times it's shared eye contact, and a lot of times it happens in the car. No matter what it looks like, this story tells me that prayer can change us. In prayer, we are invited to imagine speaking face-to-face -face with a spirit that is 100% in love with us and 0% judgmental towards us, who knows us better than we know ourselves and who greets us with nothing but care. If we were given the chance to say anything to that spirit, wouldn't that, in and of itself, be transformative? We get to find out for ourselves. Thank God. Just a moment ago, you heard a reading from Jonah, the book of Jonah. You may remember reading and being taught about this story. It's a fantastical story that is easy to capture your attention, especially when you're a child. I heard the story many times as a kid, although I can't say I truly remembered much. Of course, I remembered Jonah being in the belly of a whale. Although I can't say I gleaned any particular life lesson from that, other than sometimes I guess God uses fish to push us in the right direction, which, you know, kind of all that really did to me was make me very suspicious of my goldfish. Our relationship was really never the same with our eyes always watching me and judging me from that fish tank. However, the book of Jonah is perhaps one of the most clever books in the Bible. It really is a satire or a parody that subverts our expectations of the characters in the story and often places them in outlandish circumstances. The Jewish prophet continually makes all the wrong moves while the supposed villains of the story freely humble themselves and accept redemption. You see, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach against the evil and injustice that was taking place there. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and Assyria was a fierce and violent country. The Ninevites had devastated Jewish cities and killed many Jewish people. Often the Jewish people that survived were then placed into slavery. It might be something akin to one of us being asked to minister to ISIS or the Nazis. Jonah as you can imagine, had very little desire to preach to that group of people. The grace of God in Jonah's eyes did not extend there. Now, fire and brimstone, that, that would work for those folks, but not so much God's grace. Jonah did eventually get on a boat per God's request. However, he did not go to Nineveh. In fact, he headed the other way, the opposite direction, to Tarshish. I guess the thinking was maybe God would be cool with this. You know, I am, I'm on a boat after all. However, that ruse did not last long, and God sends a storm to keep the boat and Jonah from running away. Jonah had hitched a ride with some pagan sailors, and when the storm comes, they asked Jonah what he had done to make his God so angry. Jonah then recommends that the sailors simply throw him overboard Jonah would rather die than reverse course and preach to those dirty Ninevites. He's a bit of a dramatic guy. Now the pagan sailors, going against the typecast of a pagan sailor, tried another option. 
They tried to humanely isolate Jonah rather than give in to his request. They attempted to get to shore to drop off Jonah. However, that large storm was much too strong. Eventually, Jonah is thrown overboard. Now, this is where our friend, that big fish, comes into play. We all remember this part. The whale gulps up Jonah and he rides that fish ferry for three days. During this time, he has a personal come to Jesus meeting in the most literal of ways and is eventually spit up onto dry land, now walkable distance, to Nineveh. God, once again, commands Jonah to preach to the Ninevites against the injustice and evil that is occurring there. This time, Jonah goes. But, you know, he still isn't really all about it. He's going to do the bare minimum. These people, these people, you see, they still don't deserve God's forgiveness or redemption. So Jonah goes into the city, but just barely inside the city. And there he gives maybe the worst sermon of all time. Well, the jury's still out on what you're listening to at this moment. (laughs) But it was pretty bad. His sermon in Nineveh was literally one sentence. Forty more days and Nineveh shall be overturned. That's it. That was the entire sermon. There was no mention of what Nineveh's sin was. There was no mention of how to respond to that sin. There was no mention of God's redemptive love or grace. There was no mention of God, period. There was no effort on Jonah's part. He sabotaged his own message. Perhaps it was a plot to ensure Nineveh's destruction. However... His plan didn't work. Despite this message or lack thereof, the Spirit of God was at work. The king of Nineveh and the entire city repent and begin to turn away from violence and injustice. These cruel, evil pagans show themselves to be more responsive to God's love and justice than God's own prophet. This was all despite Jonah's contempt for them and his belief that they did not deserve the grace of God. And this is the part of the story where perhaps Jonah is the most relatable. How many groups do we think do not deserve the grace of God? That other political party, I hope they get what's coming to them. Young people don't want to work anymore. I have no sympathy. Back in my day, boomers are so out of touch, they ruin this country. Drug addicts don't know right from wrong. They simply have no morals. Keep that religion out of my country. These people live like animals. Why don't they live like we do? Or perhaps we aren't even aware of how we lump entire groups into a narrative that's not quite as deserving of God's grace or our empathy. When I started seminary way back in the fall of 2020, the school wanted us to take an implicit bias test. Now, implicit bias is a form of bias that occurs automatically or unintentionally, but it nevertheless affects our judgments, decisions, and behaviors. I said, okay, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I mean, it sounds like a waste of time. I'm coming here for a master's in social justice. I'm so woke, I don't even sleep. (laughs) But I'll take your test. So I took the test. The test is taken via computer and uses words or images to test your association with them. Do you find certain words or images that are tied to one group good or bad? The test can be taken to look at many different groups to see if you have any bias towards a certain race, religion, sexuality, or even things such as body type. 
They measure your answers, your response times, and even change the keys on the keyboard that correspond with good or bad. This way you can't game the system. Guess what? Your boy had some biases. I had at least a slight bias in more than one category. Now, am I a bad person? I mean, maybe, but it's not because I have biases. All of us have some sort of bias. Bias is how our minds streamline thinking so we can quickly make sense of the world. Our brains are biologically designed to perform these quick judgments. In early history, this subconscious thinking was a form of protection against the natural world. So naturally, we associate more positively with groups we are familiar with and often place others into groups that we stereotype. However, when we do this, we see our fellow children of God as the others or strangers, many times less deserving of redemption, of God's grace, of empathy, and of being seen as equal to us. Obviously, bias is damaging when it is overt, but it can be just as dangerous when it is implicit. An often cited New York City study found that when black and white job seekers sent out similar resumes to employers, black applicants were half as likely to be called for interviews as white job seekers. Implicit bias can also lead to a phenomenon known as a stereotype threat. This is where people internalize negative stereotypes about themselves based on group associations. For example, Young women often internalize implicit attitudes related to gender and math performance. Biases almost always work to the detriment of the lower status group. So, how can we recognize these biases? How can we train our minds to not stereotype entire groups, thus writing them off? What about the simple act of entering into community with others? According to studies conducted at Loyola Marymount University, positive interaction with other groups decreases the likelihood that biases will be applied. When we engage in activities that include individuals from diverse backgrounds, it allows our minds to view those different from us as fellow humans, and it destigmatizes an entire group. It gives us the ability to see the person that's standing before us, not our preconceived notion based on the idea of the groups that they belong to. Now, this doesn't mean we're required to always agree with others and not recognize differences. In fact, differences should be recognized and often celebrated. A 2003 study in Dartmouth found that a multicultural approach that recognizes our differences and the strengths that come from this is much more effective at easing racial bias than a colorblind approach that often ignores those differences and the implicit biases that may exist. Jesus was our greatest example of this. He consistently communed those considered lowly in society and accepted them as they are, tax collectors, women, prostitutes, those of other racial and religious backgrounds, folks that wouldn't have been considered as rational company. Not only did this subvert expectations, but it allowed for humanity and friendship to be shown rather than the stigmatization of those groups themselves. It allows us not to think of others as those people, those that are not quite as worthy of the grace of God, not quite as deserving of redemption or opportunity. Now those people are worth our time. They're a part of our community and have inherent value and are equal siblings in the Lord our God.
Let's get back to our friend, the prophet Jonah. After the redemption of the Ninevites, he was mad at God. Jonah said to God, much like a petulant teenager, see, this is why I didn't want you to come here. This is why I didn't want to come here. I knew you would be compassionate and forgiving. Why don't you just kill me now? Jonah would rather be dead once again than see the redemption of those people. The book ends with Jonah still angry at God about his mercy and grace. And God asks him, should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? We never hear Jonah's answer in the text. Jonah now fades away and God is asking us the question, are you okay with the fact that I love your enemy? This strange fever dream of a story is now holding a mirror up to us and we see the worst parts of our character magnified. This story should generate humility and gratitude that God can and does love every single one of us, even our enemies. We're all worthy of redemption no matter who we are or what we have done. This story speaks to the wideness of God's mercy and love, but also it can challenge us to our core. Do we really exhibit the same love and mercy? Sure, we're all siblings in Christ, but do we really believe that? Does that really apply to everyone, even that person or those people? Must we really advocate for the humanity of everyone? These are the questions, my friends, that we must truly wrestle with. Not the theory of, but the actual practice of loving our enemies and living in the sweet but sometimes, sometimes bitter embrace that God's restorative grace truly is for all. Amen.